1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
0: Welcome to episode 449 with my guest Tony M., I'm Paul Gilmartin, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist, it's not a doctor's office, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com, mentalpod, also the social media handles you can follow uh, us at. I want to, um, oh, first of all, an update on the uh, ketamine uh, infusions that, that I did. I did five of them, and I'm not sure it helped me. That's one of the things my psychiatrist, he said, he said, you know, it's worth looking into, but I have the feeling it's not, it's not going to make a difference because you have treatment-resistant depression, and then he laughed and tried to high-five me, and I told him to fuck off. But uh, there's also a a lot of other moving parts going on right now. I'm uh, weaning myself off Lamictal, so that might be affecting things. And last week, I had an epic sugar binge that threw me into a deep, deep funk, and I don't know how much that is contributing it but i backed off of the the sugar and the carbs the last couple of days and i'm feeling significantly better so it's one of the frustrating things about battling any any type of metal thing is just knowing what what part is fucking with me right now what part do i need to adjust what it's so it's some some days it's so overwhelming it's so overwhelming uh, I want to read an awfulsome moment. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Full of Myself but Still Hungry. <laughs> such a great such a great name. Uh, she writes, A few years ago when I was 23, I was at a bar in my city grabbing drinks with my friend. I couldn't stop staring at the woman next to us at the bar because she looked so familiar. I just couldn't remember how I knew her. When we finally made eye contact, she said Hi. I could tell she could recognize recognize me, so I finally bit the bullet and asked her where I knew her from. She asked if I went to the middle school she worked at, and it all hit me. She was my sixth grade science teacher. When I told her my name, she paused for a minute to try and remember me as an 11-year-old student. After a moment of awkward silence, she took a breath in and exclaimed, Ah, yes, very disorganized and as she nodded her head and smiled i couldn't help but laugh because i have not changed a bit this r- made me r- remember 6th grade and there was a teacher that we had I went to a catholic grade school and we had a um a teacher a lay teacher as uh, we call people that weren't nuns or priests named miss thomas and oh my god every one of us had a crush miss thomas she was beautiful and i remember one day that a group of boys uh, had been mean to this this girl in our class and miss thomas took us aside and was just chewing us out and i remember thinking i have no chance with her now <laughs> like in that little sixth grade brain what what like what would i do with an adult woman like ask her permission to go to second base <laughs> it's such a weird that 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 time in between the taking an interest in you know the opposite sex or the same sex or whatever it is that that interests you but not knowing the mechanics of it having no intimacy with the body and as a boy only knowing anything about Females from just visually, either looking at magazines or you know girls uh, on the on the block doing "show me yours, uh, I'll show you mine" kind of a thing. And I I remember there was always somebody, and I and I have the feeling this is probably the case in a lot of schools. There was always like one or two people that were more advanced sexually they were leading the charge of trying things out. And I just remember people whispering, oh yeah, they went to third base. What? What was it like? Oh, he's, he's, I remember this term and it made me so squeamish was, oh yeah, she creamed. (laughs) They went to third base and she totally creamed. And I remember thinking, I don't ever want to touch something that that creams and I think I was 16 the first time I went beyond second base as you as you call it and she was a really really nice girl and so patient and I had no idea what I was doing I for for all I know I was you know pushing my thumb into her navel thinking I was in the area and I I just remember like going lower and lower and thinking, is is this where (laughs) is this where my finger goes? And having no success and becoming more and more embarrassed. And then the thought occurred to me, Oh my God, what if I overshot it and I'm touching her butthole and I freaked out and just gave up. And that was That was my first. I guess you could say I tried to to take third base and was thrown out. Oh, my God. So embarrassing. So embarrassing, but kind of also adorably uh, innocent, I guess. I got a couple of interesting emails after um, a thing I talked about on the episode with uh, Adrian Nolan Smith last week. Uh, There was an email I got from a listener uh, taking exception uh, to the way that I talk about race on the podcast and saying it's not cool that you only talk about race when you're interviewing people of color or that you always ask them uh, about race and how it affects their their mental state, and it kind of took me off guard. And so I, I you know, did some soul searching, and uh, I've gotten a couple of emails since then from people that I think have have helped me. Understand where that listener was coming from. This one was, is from a, a listener named Jess. And she writes, um, talking about Wraith and Ethnicity is extremely important. I'm Asian American and my cultural background cannot be ignored when dealing with my mental health issues. It's why I have a hard time finding a therapist who I feel is a good fit for me. I live in the southeastern U.S. and I have grown up around mostly white people. Most mental health care providers here are white. It's been very important for me to find a therapist who I feel can understand me and my background in a nuanced way." We should also remember that trauma is often intergenerational. Uh, not having the intersection of race and ethnicity and mental health in the picture would be like being colorblind, and then parentheses, pun intended. So thank you, Paul. I appreciate the way you're able to talk with people and how open and compassionate you can be. Um, go fuck yourself, Jess. <laughs> and then I got an email that I think really helped me understand it even more and this is from a listener named madeline and she writes i wanted to respond to your discussion on the podcast today about how to talk about race on on uh, the podcast I appreciated the listener's question and also that you opened it up for feedback. I'm white too, and I've noticed in myself and others that a lot of white people are afraid to talk about race and get pretty defensive immediately in order to shut down the conversation. We assume that when people bring up how we might have done something that hurts communities of color, we take it as us being bad people because we view racism's racism as something that is primarily interpersonal rather than institutional and systemic. I've been a regular listener since 2013 and I'm now in grad school to become a therapist. I also have done a lot of ongoing personal and professional work around whiteness and racism and would like to chime in on this. What I heard in the listener's question wasn't that you shouldn't ask about race with your guests of color, but they shouldn't be the only guests that you talk about race with. This supports the idea that race is only something that people of color have and white as the default, like your listener said. What would it look like to have every guest identify their race, not just people of color? I also like the listener's idea of just leaving it up to the guest to determine if their race is important in the narrative they want to tell. For instance, how does whiteness impact people's experience of mental illness and health? Uh, and then she offers a resource, uh, a podcast called Seeing White uh, on Seen on Radio, and Seen is S-C-E-N-E. Uh, I'm not sure which is the name of the podcast. I think the name of the podcast is "Seen on Radio," and the episode is "Seeing White." Um, she writes it focuses on the history of whiteness because the producers notice that whenever we, as a culture, talk about race and racism, we talk about people of colors' race and leave white people out of it. You make this really turns some light bulbs on in my head because I think I always think that if white people talk about our experience with race. That that it's going to that we're going to be blind to our uh, sense of privilege um, that that will 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 exclude other races from the picture, or will be assuming what we know that we know what it's like to be a person of color, and. What that helped me understand, your email, is that all all perspectives are important in understanding how we view things, what our experiences are, and, and kind of, I guess, how they all fit together. I don't know if that makes sense or not. I think I should have had three cappuccinos instead of two. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com. We've been with them as a sponsor for a couple of years now, and uh, I can't say enough good things about it. The feedback I get from people that have tried BetterHelp.com is awesome, and my own personal experience is fantastic. Uh, if you're interested, and you've never tried online counseling, uh, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include this slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. Fill out a questionnaire and if they have a counselor that they think is a good match for you, they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is a good fit for you. And You can communicate with your therapist via email, live text, chat, phone, video. Uh, That's for you to work out between them and most of the therapists, you can um, connect to them more than uh, once a week and uh, I'm just a big fan and you need to be over 18. Our sponsor for today uh, is Calm. I think those of you that listen to this podcast know how important a good night's sleep and being relaxed during the day is, and Calm is just a great app for all of the above. Um, They have a huge library of programs designed to help you get the sleep that your brain and your body needs. They have soundscapes, uh, over a hundred different sleep stories narrated. Narrinate, uh, that's that's where you take a, a story and you soak it overnight in uh, a little bit of soy sauce, a little bit of ginger, and a couple of scallions. Uh, they have a hundred sleep stories narrated by really great voices like uh, Jerome Flynn, the guy from Game of Thrones, uh, Stephen Fry, who's... I could listen to his voice all night. And, uh, it's just a really cool app. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. And right now, you guys get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. That's C A L M dot com slash mental. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash mental. And then this is a, uh, an awful awesome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself how do I uninstall mental illness well in the old days you would hit C prompt and then uh, you would type in fuck me she writes in the middle of my last depressive episode I was laid off from my dream job as a therapist at a special education school at the time that job was the only thing keeping me alive I was admitted to an inpatient unit a few days after receiving the news. This particular hospital had units for children, adolescents, adults, and geriatrics. It also had caged-in outdoor patios for all the units. The adult unit patio was on the second story looking over the children's patio. One afternoon, while on a fresh air break, I looked over the edge into the children's area. To my horror, I saw one of my clients... He immediately recognized me and loudly called out my name. I quickly backed away from the edge and out of his sight. I was mortified. I can't guarantee that he thought I was a patient. However, I was disheveled and wearing pajamas, which would be strange for hospital staff. I just hope when he does figure it out, he realizes that even the helpers need help sometimes too. Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared scared. and And we're we're just all all in in this this together. There was no joy Overeating Apathy doesn't leave any marks Numbing out Physically I wish that I was a girl
1: Panic attacks are so violent Rudderless They were mistaken for seizures Shot coke in my neck
0: The TV was talking to me Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared He said, there's going to be a saga of hunger, strike Nothing's real And I'm going to die Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal Just
1: beyond broken I'm on out You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with
0: Don't gonna stop it Fucking someone else It's okay to be grabbed a, a bite to eat, and our stories are uh, a bit similar and that uh, we grew up in environments where there weren't a lot of boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and the term for it could be covert incest, um, but the label doesn't really matter as much as uh, how it affects us. And where where should we start with your your story? I don't know. That's there's you, just like such a, a ball of
1: twine that I think it's like in Ouroboros, like you almost don't know where to start because it doesn't really matter. Um You're how old? I'm thirty nine, about to turn forty in the next
0: year. Married? Got yes. kids? I got one kiddo. Yeah. Um boy there's another one you don't know about, that's why I said kids. <laughs> um There may be dozens around. <laughs> I travel enough for work around the world that who knows. Yeah, you you've been <laughs> spreading your seed beautifully. Um, so give me some snapshots from childhood that you think are kind of representative of the emotional. Yeah.
1: I, of- you know, I was telling you before we started recording that I, I was taking notes cause I was trying to unpack this and figure out a little bit of like, where do I start? What's the entry point into the story? Um, and you know, like just snapshots that come to mind, like just visual, like very visceral visual images are things like, um, a lot of it is around sexuality and sex and um, not respecting personal autonomy. Um, and I, I sit here and I almost chuckle at myself because I have this vocabulary now <laughs> that even like two and a half years ago, I didn't really have. And I just thought I was weird and broken. And I, some of the things are like, The typical things you you hear about when you read about covert incest like coming into the bathroom when when you're trying to go to the bathroom or a big one for me was um that we lived in this one house one time where like my parents had a bathroom that was adjacent to their bedroom but it was kind of like tucked in this back corner of the house Mm -hmm. and my mom would just call me in there all the time to like ask me the most stupid asinine questions that had no relevance and i would go in there and it was just. I, it just felt icky. It just.
0: She would be bathing, or in the toilet, or she'd
1: walking? be going to the toilet usually because yeah, yeah. that bathroom didn't have a shower. Um, but you know, this one memory I've been working with my my therapist on unpacking some of this, and this one memory that she had me journaling mm-hmm. and just like trying to reconnect with my my child and um, my inner child, not the random child I don't know about somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there is this because I was going through when I started in therapy. And I started going through things. Basically, any kind of um, sexual impulse I had just kind of shut down as I started um, unpacking things. And this was a big problem for me and my wife for a while, incidentally. And when I started really trying to connect to it, there was this memory of I was maybe like 13, 14, 15. Well, I had to have been 15 or 16 because where I lived at the time, we could get driver's licenses at 15. And my house was so chaotic um, that... I would just try and like take the long way to school, try and take the long way to work and try and be at home as little as possible. And so there was this one evening where, um, I had one of these uh, CD players that you could like record from the CD to tape because mm-hmm. my tape, my car only had a tape player. So I was, like I was doing these like special mixes for my car just so I had something to listen to. And, um, because of trying to control audio levels and things like that, I had door closed. And out of the middle of nowhere, my dad just bursts into the room and and just shouted. So everyone can hear, see, I caught you jacking off. And I was like, dude, no, like what? And it was just, just, just shame. I I don't even know what would, like, I don't know. Like, cause I think about it and it's like, was his goal to embarrass his child? Was his, did he really want to like barge in and see me doing that? Like, was that a thing? I don't know. And so yeah, that's like this big memory. And I, as I've unpacked some of this with my therapist, it was like after that, a lot of any burgeoning like teenage hormones or mm-hmm. sexual things like that just kind of shut down, at least in a healthy way. Um, because the other side of this is that growing up in this house with that father, um, like I think my parents tried to... Position themselves as being like super open and super liberal and mm-hmm. see we have no shame about our bodies, yada yada, but you know my dad would watch pornography openly, F- thank God not when I had any friends over, which wasn't that often anyway, but with me or my brother and my mom around, he would watch pornography on the family television um that
0: that is unbelievable
1: yeah i and it, it at the time I felt gross about it, but i I didn't have vocabulary
0: and um, and, and would you tell yourself something when that when those feelings would come up would you would you push it out of your head would you explain it away or would you just compartmentalize it and ignore it do you remember having any kind of uh, conversations with yourself i
1: remember the the closest i remember is not knowing like not feeling okay with it but in my head, processing it in such a way where I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me that I wasn't okay with this thing. Right. Because, you know, you see your parents as like, they have their shit together. They know what's going on. So obviously, this must be okay. Why am I so sensitive? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so there was that. My, and like, my parents had this, you. I don't know if kids these days are going to remember this because I don't think they're in vogue anymore. Like these big water beds, these big massive water beds. Mm-hmm. And under my parents' uh waterbed, there was like all this storage, like all this negative space. And that was where my dad kept his porn stash. And it was like the most open secret. Right. And, and they weren't always there because sometimes like the doors would be left open and like they're just kind of mm-hmm. spilling out or, um, one of the big ones for me is like I'm a I'm a computer geek. That's my career choice. And I was in like 12, 13, 14, just kind of coming up wanting to play on computers and do that stuff. And when my parents finally bought a computer, it was located in their room. And to go in there, I had to be around like the magazines that were laying around or um, sex toys and things like that that were left on the bedside table or on the bed or I remember at one point, my parents had a sex swing <laughs> and it was just like mounted in the bedroom and it was hanging there. And so wow. I go in as this kiddo and I'm like, so I just, I remember just kind of like, I go in, I sit down in the chair, I look at the computer and I don't look at anything else yeah, kind of thing. Um, now, did you
0: have siblings?
1: I have a younger brother. Um, He's five years younger than me. Um, and, you know, I, this topic is never, a lot of this has never come up with him and You know, one thing, I've I've been working up trying to figure out how much of this do I talk with him about? Mm -hmm. Because my experience with having a brother that's five years younger than me is that my reality, he was always just barely over the horizon from it. So he was sufficiently divorced from whatever reality was going on. So like when I was a high school freshman, he was still in elementary school kind of thing. And so I don't know what kind of exposure he had to it. Because when I was 18, which would have made him 13 at the time, my parents divorced. And so dad had gone away. And actually, for even a few years prior to the divorce, my dad had been working at a job a couple states away and wasn't really living in the in the house. So I don't know how much firsthand exposure he ever had to it. And so and now he's got a beautiful family and all that. And I don't know. I I
0: wrestle with that. It's interesting that it was coming from both of your parents, uh, which, which is not unheard of. But I, I, I wonder how, if like one parent was leading the charge, or um, just kind of what 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 the. I think the, the leader, the if anything,
1: was my my dad. Yeah, I mean, I I hate to put terms on it since I can't talk to him and really. And he's never obviously done like any kind of a eval or anything, but I when I read about narcissism and things like that, he really fits a lot of that mold. Yeah. And then so along those lines, if that was the role that he was kind of in, my mom wasn't a victim. For a long time in my head, I think I rationalized her away as a victim. But the more I do, she was just lazily complacent, I guess, for mm-hmm. lack of a better kinda like not necessarily enabling, but not definitely not advocating for her children. Right,
0: I mean the, the calling you into the bathroom and barging into the bathroom when you're when you're in there that that's certainly <laughs> proactive in yeah. in crossing boundaries. Uh, oh, that's know. certainly true. And you know, one I've even heard you
1: talk about this that, like that thing like if you say, "Hey, I'm naked," and they say, "Well, it's nothing I've ever seen before. You were a baby." Right. Like that definitely was part of my reality. And I think um, I was reading Ken Adams' book, and I think he has one of the anecdotes in that book,
0: which is exactly about that story, that kind of story. The, the book is called "Silently Seduced." For the the listeners, and if you're shaking your head, nodding, and relating to what uh, Tony and I are talking about, uh, highly recommend reading "Silently Seduced." Yeah, definitely. I mean, I go to a support group
1: uh, where back home, where I'm from, and. I've mentioned that book a few times, and like one of the people in my support group is a, a mental health professional, and he had never heard of it, and he went home and read it and came back a few weeks later and was like, oh my God, you should yes. <laughs> just like... So like, I think that there's just not a bunch of awareness yes. about it, but you know, like those stories were in that book, and I think that that's when I was like, okay, it's not just me. Mm-hmm. It, it, this is a real thing, and... Was that, that
0: a relief on some level?
1: yeah i think there was some relief but then there was like now i've got to figure out what to do with this right. vocabulary um but there were certainly and i've had this conversation with my wife just like it doesn't matter how i got here i'm still broken that, or at least that's how i felt or into a certain degree still feel um and that was just a that was a lot i mean just unpacking yes. that and realizing that no
0: that wasn't okay and what, and what are you finding uh it has affected um
1: oh god that's a because there was other stuff going on in the house at the same time, so there was a lot of physical violence too um by both parents no only by my father incidentally, and I think that when I think about my, so he
0: so he was multi talented
1: oh yeah he's uh like- w- what was that um could he? He's a five. He's a five-tool star, right? Like right. when football, they say
0: this. It's like a five-five-tool recruit. <laughs> he's, he's the Swiss pro. Army knife of creepy. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Would he? Was he talented enough to punch you while he was jerking off? No, no. Okay, but, but, so he came up a little short. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's
1: got to work on that, right? Yes. If you're going to make it to the pro level. Yes.
0: <laughs> he's not ambidextrous.
1: <laughs> he might be actually. I don't know. I don't even want to go there. <laughs>
0: So so go ahead <laughs> and does it feel good to you to to laugh and uh kind of relate to somebody else who can who can uh relate yeah, it does it? a
1: lot um actually you know vicariously listening to your podcast and hearing you tell your anecdotes over the years um has been really helpful in that way because I have a relatively small circle of friends back home and but with my wife like I tell her and she's trying to be supportive Mm -hmm. but the reality of what that was like escapes her and i mean that that's no fault against her right right it's
0: just it's hard to wrap your head around
1: yeah how how would that even be possible is like where you've got a and so being able to talk with you like we did before at lunch or um even right now just i can look at your i can tell a story and see that look in your eyes and you know that what i'm saying is true and you know, when I originally reached out to you saying I wanted to record, you know, there's always that negative part inside my head saying, well, you're the least qualified person ever to be on Paul's podcast, yada, 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 like all the tricks that you're... I feel
0: about that on my own podcast, (laughs) so welcome to the club.
1: But, you know, like, there have been a couple of episodes that really rocked and changed my world, Mm -hmm. and as much as I f- internally inside my own head will tell myself that I don't measure up enough to be on this podcast. If I can tell my story and it gets one person in t- to just not feeling like they're alone, mm-hmm. uh, then that's enough. That's all because hopefully through voice, not, I can't look them in the eye, but through voice, I can reach out to them and say, you're not alone. It's not you. This is a real thing.
0: It is a real thing. And the as, as I say often on the podcast, it's really not as much the events as it is the ripples yeah. of the events. That's the part. I think a lot of people who have never experienced um, a deep violation, they don't understand that it's, it's not the memory, mm-hmm. per se, of the thing that is haunting someone. They're not necessarily holding on to that and just saying... Something bad happened to me, and I don't, I'm upset that something bad happened to me. It's, it, if, and and that can be part of it, but it's your ability to trust. Yeah. It's the fear of going out your front door, and not necessarily any particular fear, like, oh, I'm going to get hit by a car. It's just a vague feeling that the world is unsafe and that we are at the mercy of other people's boundaryless, Needs. Yeah, you know, I've
1: been thinking. I was thinking a couple of days ago as I was preparing for this, I told you I was like making notes that you just hit on exactly the feeling I couldn't put words to um, because that's been something in my relationship with my wife. Because, you know, for years we were married and we had a kind of a volatile relationship where we argued a lot and things like that. And, um, Part of it was now I can recognize that I didn't I didn't feel like I could trust because I didn't you know like I thought that just like she was saying, trust me, like my parents said trust me, I knew that the other shoe was going to drop eventually. Mm-hmm. That that trust was going to be violated and I was always on guard trying to be prepared for when it happened, I'm gonna be okay by myself because that's the only way I'm gonna get through this. And did you ever resort to physical violence when you would get angry? No, no. Um, so, not with my wife. We did some stuff like when my daughter was very little and she would throw tantrums. I remember, in my I've talked to my wife about this a lot recently, I, sometimes we, we had a lot of behavioral issues out of her and we would spank every once in a while and my wife didn't want to do the spanking. Mm-hmm. So she would say, you're the dad, you need to do the spanking. And we I would do it and always feel like I wanted to throw up. Yeah. And I think we did that maybe for like three months. And finally, I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. That's just, no. And we didn't, like, it's. Not, I don't want anyone listening to this thing, like I'm beating my kid every day, right? It was like right. once a week or once every two weeks, right? Like if she's throwing a really big hissy fit. It was never right, but that was kind of where we were. And looking back on it now, I feel so much shame. But in my head, I was like, you know what, That's mm-hmm. that's what was going on, like. Maybe I maybe I was wrong to think that it wasn't okay because my dad did that to me. Maybe that's just like I'm a parent. I have one kid. I don't have any other comparative experience here. Like what what's going on? And eventually, I was just like, no, I'm I'm not doing that anymore. We're going to find a different way, whatever that means, needs we, to be.
0: My feeling about parents and the mistakes they make and stuff, even parents like like the parents that you grew up with, is I think so many things can be repaired depending on the energy that that parent comes back to the child with. I, I agree with that. And because there's something in the child that desperately wants a relationship, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at a certain point, I think that that might die and never come back, but it's pretty strong. Mm. And I don't think it takes a tremendous amount for that parent to, to begin to repair a relationship with a kid, but what I think it really takes is humility, a willingness to walk through uncomfortable feelings of of shame, and the commitment to be consistent yes, in I... new behaviors and respecting the boundaries.
1: Yeah, and, and that's one thing that I've always been really, at least the boundaries part, um, with my kiddo, is you know what, when she reached a certain age, it was like, you know what, it's not okay for me to be in there while she's showering anymore. Mm-hmm. She's old enough to dress herself, so let's let her dress herself. Um, and you're, what you were just saying about like committing to repairing the relationship—that's something like I've actually had sit-down talks with with my kiddo because I was like, you know what, what we did was not okay. You didn't deserve that. Spanking. Yeah. Yeah. The, the spanking, and I'm sorry, and I'm doing. I'm not going to do that again, and that's a promise I'm making to you. And I'm sorry that it ever happened, and let's try and go forward.
0: Did you apologize for the waterboarding?
1: No, because I think that that was completely justified. I mean, she's on it's a terrorist. Legal.
0: She's on a terrorist watch list, so. <laughs> <laughs> A tantrum is a is a an act of terror.
1: Yeah, it's domestic terror.
0: <laughs> How, if you're comfortable talking about it? How do you feel uh, your experiences have shaped your sexuality and your ability to be intimate?
1: Uh, tremendously. Um, so like I was saying earlier, um, when I first entered therapy, which incidentally, I entered therapy for an anxiety disorder. I had a year back in 2016. It was like the year from hell with two major, like six-month-long anxiety attacks that just wouldn't abate. And... um Coming out of that, to be I, fair,
0: the entire country
1: had that. Well, you know what? That's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> just just um, half the country had that. <laughs> the <They're> wrong, but. <laughs> um, and when I finally entered therapy and started going through some things and started these, the, the reality of like what was going on with my sexuality started to surface. Like in my head, what it, what it, the way it originally manifested for me it was like because I. I didn't have this good connection with what intellectual intimacy feels like and emotional intimacy and physical intimacy and separating them out, like, right? Like they can be on a continuum, but my brain went, Oh, I'm feeling really intellectually intimate with you. That means that based on the imagery I saw at home, I, we need to have sex now, or that's the only way to make you love me or make right. me feel enough. And so coming out of this, I started to feel. I guess a little bit resentful about like the sexual relationships that I had had, like even with my wife and I didn't know if
0: resentful at what in particular?
1: Well, like, so she may have wanted to do to have sex at a certain time and I didn't, but my brain went, well, this is what I've got to do. Gotcha. And, and so for a while I, I, because I was still processing a lot of those connections, I actually thought maybe for a while, like, I didn't actually have a sex drive and I thought I might be ace. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was actually a big thing because you have to navigate these things with your marital partner. And so I had a conversation with her about it. And I mean, understandably now she was really like, Oh my God, I don't know what, what to make of this. We're we're very confusing (laughs) for the spouse. We're, we're married. I thought that sex was part of a marriage. Like, what does this mean? and, I mean, we went for a while, like we talked and we went to a couple's therapist for a while and we, we, at first we didn't, we weren't having sex because I didn't feel comfortable with it. And she was honoring that boundary, um, but she was resentful about it. She didn't want to because to her, that was not her idea of what a healthy and normal sure. marriage, which is totally understandable. I don't right. fault her, but in my head, I I was so confused. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was genuine. And I don't remember at what time, but eventually we had a talk, and I was like, look, I'm just confused. I have no idea what the hell's going on. And I I read another book called um, The Sexual Healing Journey. I don't remember the woman's name who who wrote that. And there were just like chapter after chapter after chapter where it was like bells ringing. And so I took the book to her, to my wife, and said, hey, can you please read this? And it took her a little while, but eventually she read it. And I think that that helped her get where I was and give me in a healthy way give me the space. Yeah. And so we basically where she was like, "Okay, look, I'm going to take cues from you and you let me know when you're feeling like you want to reintegrate this into our marriage." And
0: what did um, that feel like?
1: Well, you know, honestly, you would want you'd think that it felt super relieved and and mm-hmm. healthy and everything, but my brain was like, "Oh no, this is just like the prelude to her being pissed off at some future point in time she's just like the clock is ticking yeah it's almost like you know like for people that suffer with codependency they always think like i'm banking good deeds with you right right? so like there's going to be some payoff of all of the overreaching good deeds i'm doing with you i felt kind of like that right like she's putting this big good deed in the bank and she's going to call in that that favor later so
0: everything is leverage
1: everything is leverage Which,
0: which is such a destroyer of trust exactly and intimacy and vulnerability
1: and, you know, I, I carried that as, uh, I carried that in my back pocket for a while of like, oh, well, I wonder when she's going to call in that debt. And it's only recently, like in the past several weeks where I, cause my, my therapist has me journal a lot where I was journaling and I forget what I was trying to actually process, but this thought came in and was like, well, shit, she's actually like, our relationship is different. It's. She's not the same person she was when I entered therapy. She's actually a supportive marital partner. She's listening. <laughs> she's listening to me, me, and she's seeing me, and she's supporting me. And, you know, I, I can't, for lack of a better word, I, I can't play a victim here anymore because she's not just talking the talk. She's walking the walk. She's there with me, and, and I need to really put that trust back in her because she's earned it.
0: And, and that, to me, is such a great example of the power of vulnerability, which is if we get vulnerable— and we give that other person a chance to be trustworthy. They get a chance to prove their love mm-hmm. or their character or lack thereof. Right. But we get to find out a truth, whether that truth is something, you know, that's quote unquote good or bad. Yeah. Um, that's that scary first step, that, that leap of faith, but we're going to get information that's valuable either way when we're mm-hmm. vulnerable.
1: Yeah. I, I went into it. I, I took that exact message into it. And I was like, you know what? You're going to find out one way or the other, like, if she is she really trustworthy or not? But I think my brain was kind of prejudiced to think that she was going to show her true colors to be that she's not. And that's then when I honestly processed, no, she's actually super trustworthy and she's really here for me and she's really supporting me. Like, that was a mind fuck. Like, I was like, oh, this is not the reality I was prepared for. I was prepared for her to be like everyone else in my life and betray me, and not support me, and... And you know that playbook, so yeah. here's a brand new playbook that it's like, <laughs> what do I do with this? Yeah, exactly. It's, and so I've really been... And that's one thing where I, because I was always so... Um, now my vocabulary is leaving me. I, I was always in that place of being a victim or being put upon... I was always ready with that quip to come back about that. Mm-hmm. But I was not necessarily always ready to say, you know what? Thank you for really being there for me. Thank you for really supporting me. I told you that I needed some space. Thank you for giving me that space. Um, I wasn't prepared for th- I I had all this other negative vocabulary. I didn't
0: have that vocabulary. Yes. And, and there is something kind of scary about realizing that our role is, is changing how we view ourselves is mm-hmm. changing that we're wow maybe I'm not the person that always gets shit on mm-hmm. uh so my inner monologue is got to change cuz th- that's not benefiting me that's no longer protecting me you know right. i think that inner monologue as a kid protected us because we didn't get our hopes up
1: oh yeah definitely i mean I, there were there were a lot of times growing up where you know, I was always prepared for, like, what, what awful mood is dad going to be in? Or, and I didn't ask for a lot either because the answer was usually no, mm-hmm. right? So, like, I was growing up in the 90s with, like, my, my kids my age were playing video games or the computer age was kind of just dawning, so people were getting into computers and going over to people's houses to play games. I didn't ask for those things because I, I knew the answer was no, right like because in all of my growing up years i had one friend sleep over one time like that that reality wasn't something that that was part of what i could live with so i just didn't ask and i just got used to not asking
0: mhm the the um one of the ripples you know we were talking about the ripples is i i think when we when our trust is shattered and our expectations get super low as adults, we tend to struggle with self-care. Mm-hmm. Uh, we keep our lives very, very small and predictable. Yes, We don't take chances. The thought of expanding our lives and taking on new uh, and untried things is not in our wheelhouse. It's
1: funny you say that because those are like exactly bullet points in my notebook right now yeah. of things I was like, things I'm
0: still working on. <laughs> Yeah, and and it does get better, you know. I I like the term wounded because I, while some people I think might be classified as as broken, I think most people, given the right supportive environment and dedication to doing the work to heal, I think most people's wounds can heal. And yeah, there's always going to be a little bit of scar tissue, but. The tools that we need to develop just to stay alive and function can be the very tools that enhance our lives in areas totally unrelated to mm. uh the fear of intimacy and all that other stuff. Tools that we can break out at work oh, in yeah. traffic, uh you know, etcetera, etcetera. And so in many ways it's it's almost like a like a broken limb that heals and then is even stronger yeah I, it's not, I know that I, sounds cheesy and new agey but it it i I really do believe that
1: no i'm and i I agree with that because now the reality of needing to practice that every day but the one that really resonated in your list that you had and something I'm still working on is the self care part so my working with my therapist like I need from self care day to day maintenance like I'm supposed to journal and, and just kind of like keep those emotions flowing so they don't bottle up and i i like to run i'm kind of a like what do they say a failed catholic is that the phrase i'm kind of a failed runner right now because i used to run a lot and then i had an injury that turned into laziness and now i'm trying to get back into it um and those are like things that are self-care but i sell myself out a lot like i i don't do my self-care and then i flagellate myself later going why the hell didn't you do your self care? Because you're a piece of shit that doesn't like. And something about that just feels so right. Yeah, you it, know? it's that. It's that. It's that comforting womb, right? Like that's what I was nurtured, for lack of a better word, in. So that's 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 where the comfort comes. Nice. And and getting out of that and saying, no, I'm going to hold my ground on this. And and that's one thing. Like at work, you because you were mentioning work. Because I work in an office environment and we're very calendar driven, I've blocked off time to journal or meditate or go for a run. And I can't tell you the number of times that someone says, Hey, I really need to schedule a meeting, but you've got this thing in your calendar, or like meditate or run or whatever. That, that we can really like schedule this other meeting over that, right? And rather than saying, No, that's really super important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I go, sure, that's fine. Like, and inside. I can do little... it. I can do that. Th- my personal thing some other time. And then I never do. And then the cycle continues.
0: I think one of the most disconcerting thoughts th- th- that we can have in recovery is to say, what if I'm not a lazy piece of shit? <laughs> And something else is going on here that maybe I'm just afraid, or um, shut down, or uh, you know something else that I'm uninspired, that Mm -hmm. I'm depressed.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something because I've been. I'm going to be talking um, with my therapist soon about you know I'm now so seventeen. I entered that. I'm now like two and a half years into therapy originally for an anxiety disorder. And I think I've got that pretty well under control. And then I'm still feeling like crap. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if I'm actually depressed. Like, I wonder if that's what's going on now. And so I think I've heard you talk about it a lot before. But I think always reevaluating and and because I don't think this ever ends, right? Like you don't, there's not a finish line when you're, when, when you're wounded or when you're working on things, there's not a finish line. I think we all kind of want like, you know, if you're building a a model, you follow all of the steps or if you're putting Ikea furniture together, like maybe that never ends, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but you follow the steps and then there's a finish line, right? And then you can look at the table that you built or the model that you built and say, I built a thing. But when you're working through this, like it's, it's just work. It's just, you're doing it every day. And, I think getting out of that mindset of thinking okay if I do a b c in this order I'm going to be fixed and I'm going to be normal or whatever that means that that's not reality.
0: It it I think it definitely is an ongoing process but there is a momentum. Yes. Like definitely. I think there's a momentum to a uh, lack of recovery and kind of spiraling into depression, addiction, mm-hmm. uh, isolation, etc. and I think there there's also an upward um momentum to recovery regaining trust uh feeling autonomous Mm -hmm. practicing self-care uh all all of those things i i think um but it it takes it takes a concerted effort it takes support uh it takes patience with self and a tremendous amount of self-compassion yeah uh it, it took me years to not shame myself for taking a nap. I mean, does it matter why my body wants to go lay down?
1: Yeah, you've told us that anecdote a lot of times, and I I start channeling. You're one of the voices in my head now. When if I if I do sell myself out and don't do my self care, instead of beating myself up about it, I try and go like, okay, no yeah, so maybe I should have done that or maybe it would have been great if I did that, but I'm going to have some patience with myself and say, okay, no, we'll get back on the horse and we'll just keep doing this and we'll keep falling off of the horse and getting back on the horse as many times as it takes until we stay on the horse.
0: Yeah. And uh, people who haven't experienced this this kind of thing um, may think, ah, oh, you know, you're kind of staying in... in victim mode just talking about this and uh, you know you just want to to blame other people or them to feel bad about themselves this is not about making other people feel bad about themselves we don't even have to confront the people who may have hurt us it's about us stopping punishing ourselves Mm -hmm. arresting that mean voice in our head that we used to mistake for discipline it's Mm -hmm. not discipline it's it's a prison of our own making.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this there's this band that I really like um, called Dream Theater, and the f- former drummer he went through uh, an AA program and was he was going through the twelve steps. He they ended up writing this cycle of songs uh, about like steps one through three and then four through five, six or whatever, and one of the songs on there is in this repeating motif in this in the suite is called the glass prison, mm-hmm. and when i before I even entered therapy, I was a fan of theirs, and I listened to it and i didn't resonate and Now that I'm in therapy and i'm going to I was like oh oh that that's that's real <laughs> yeah uh,
0: and you know speaking of doing the the work of assessing our part in things that's another part of recovery is is to grapple with the fact that uh we've found Really maladaptive ways Mm -hmm. of coping that may wind up uh, hurting the people that we love in Mm -hmm. adulthood. And maybe we were blind to them before we started recovering, but um, being committed to not being a dick and and, and using the fact that we were victimized as an excuse to keep being a dick. It's like once you know the truth, the responsibility is yours to quit being a dick
1: yeah i mean and i struggle with that some now because there are some people in my life that i can't for various reasons they're always going to be in my life and they just drain me Mm -hmm. and talking to the people and saying you know what i can do this much but not that much but doing it in a way where i'm saying you know i just need to go i'll spend this amount of time with you but then i need to go take care of myself not no i think you're an asshole and i don't want to be around you like right like one of those ways is healthy for everyone, and the other one is just, you're an asshole. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. One of the things that I had to learn how to develop was to be conscious of my tone of voice. I yeah. never realized how uh, cold and uh, arrogant I could be. in In my mind, I was doing the best I could because I wasn't letting my anger out. So mm. saying something very calmly and very measured to me didn't seem wrong but as i began to recover i realized i sound like a dick (laughs) i you know i sound like i don't care Uh, my ex-wife used to call it my insurance salesman voice and in therapy it came out that that's what i did to keep the steam from exploding And, and because i would also be in the process of shutting down and feeling mm-hmm. sad and and depressed and angry and just a thousand different emotions. And mm-hmm. so I had to learn how to uh, be conscious of what that other pe- person might be experiencing on their end as I'm talking to them, what my face looks like, what yeah. my tone of voice sounds like. Yeah, I like.
1: have a similar thing, not quite the same, but very similar where because I felt so shattered inside Um, I realized eventually that I had developed this very extroverted personality. And I actually just heard this word last week. Have you heard the word ambervert? Mm -mm. So someone in in a group I go to just used this this past week. Apparently, it's like people that for whether professional or other reasons, like maybe a stand-up comic would do this. You'd be very extroverted on stage or in whatever kind of spotlight. But then really what you need is you need that introverted time to go recover. Oh and, my God, I totally relate to that. And and I, and I, I was like, I've never heard that word before. Yes, that's me, because for work and other reasons, I have to go beyond a stage and I have to present or I have to talk to uh, prospective customers, et cetera. But then I really do cherish um, just time by myself and, and time to recover. But where I was going with that is, I developed this very gregarious, extroverted personality, uh, couple it with some humor, and I didn't realize what I was doing, but in my, what I was really doing was trying to control the narrative mm-hmm. in a very way. Like, if you can see all the funny, silly shit I'm doing, you're not going to look too closely at how crappy I feel. You're not going to look and get to know me and, and understand me in some kind of intimate way. But then the unexpected thing that happened is I'll. there were times, not all the time, but there were times where I thought I was being funny, but what I was really doing was embarrassing people and hurting them mm-hmm. and they were going away and going, that wasn't funny at all, dude. And like, you really hurt me. And like, I really don't want to talk to you right now. And I did. I mean, I'll be honest. I did that with my wife a a lot too. And, and I can't change it, but now I can recognize it and be like, now I can slow down enough and go, am I getting to that place? Like, I still want to be that gregarious person, but I don't want to do it at the expense of other people.
0: Right. I wasn't even conscious of that for the majority of my life, and then I suddenly realized I am throwing other people under the bus because I'm feeling anxious, and the first mm-hmm. po- thought that pops into my head is usually something defensive and mean,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, I, I hadn't even considered what it would be like to be those people, to be the the brunt of my my jokes, and yeah. I'd like to think that I'm way more conscious of it now um but it's all of these things were revelations all of these things were the ripples of uh i think i mean maybe i was just born a sarcastic asshole but um i I, i'd like to think that these these were just bad coping mechanisms and not inherently who we are just like uh, the the parents that crossed our boundaries i don't believe they were born that way Mm -hmm. you know i i believe they were a product of what they experienced or the needs that weren't met as, oh, as yeah. kids.
1: I mean, I looked at my own parents and when I started to get a certain level of recovery, um, I started cause my, uh, I did this exercise where I was like trying to connect. I was really trying to connect with my child, inner child mm-hmm. at certain ages, but then naturally how that comes like with the parents that I had at that age. And I was really thinking one time about like my parents were 19 and 20. They were barely in the college. I was a surprise like they, they were totally unequipped. They weren't thinking about this. So they were doing the best that they could. And, you know, I'm still I still harbor some anger about f- specific things that were done. But, you know, do I think that they had some master plan to like fuck up their child? No, I don't think so. I think that they were stumbling through reality just like all the rest of us.
0: Do you have any fond memories of yes. your parent parents? Can you can you share some of those?
1: Yeah, so I uh I grew up in um, a sports—well, not really a sports family. My dad was—actually, let me strike that a little bit, and I'll come back to it. I think from my father, which is this is really hard for me um, because of all the physical stuff and the sexual stuff. He listened to some eclectic music, at least eclectic to me. um, um, And so this is like—rocked my world by listening to like— Miles Davis and Coltrane and like got me and I got like, was listening to like this weird, like fusion jazz stuff. And that shaped my understanding of music and, and music is maybe the most important thing to me in my life, other than my wife and my daughter. And so, you know, despite all of this other crap that he did, um, really instilled that love of music in me. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, but also like I was gonna say about sports, like, i absolutely love baseball and there were these trips that we would take um when i was growing up um, we had some family connections to the st louis area and so i kind of grew up a st louis cardinals fan and we would go and we'd every once in a while we'd take like a week like when the cardinals had a home stand and we would go to the old bush stadium and um, go see like four or five games and then um Where We knew where the players would come out in their cars and we would stand there. And um, there was one time in the mid-90s where, you know, like there are these baseball card companies like Topps and Dunn. I don't remember all the brand names anymore, but the Cardinals produced their own special set. And I don't remember how, but I somehow managed to get a complete roster set of these cards. And my goal was to get every player to sign all of them. And so like for like that week or 10 days, every night after the game, I was going and standing out there. like, okay, I need. I was a huge Ozzie Smith fan. So I was like, uh, I got to get Ozzie Smith. And now I got to get this player. And now I got to get this player. And my parents let me do that. And um, so those were, were fond memories that I had.
0: And it's such a great example of how complicated people can be, that they can have these beautiful parts to them and then these other parts that that hurt us. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I suppose all of us, Mm -hmm. Um, even Mother Teresa, boy, she had a mean streak. (laughs) Uh, Anything else you want to share? No, um, I just I think I want
1: to. Well, I guess what I want to say, that's so like disingenuous to say, you say anything else you want to add, and I say no, and then I proceed to tell something.
0: <laughs> no, I have no needs, Paul. But wait, hold on. Wait, wait in, here's, here's some needs. I'm recovering. <laughs>
1: um, I just want to reiterate what I said said earlier. Um, you know, if, if one person out there listening, um, this resonates with, lean into that. Don't find that that way to justify oh well that's just him on the radio or that's just this other person but my story is so different like we all tell ourselves that story that's Mm -hmm. that's how we stay stuck and lean into it and explore it a little bit And maybe nothing comes of it um but maybe something will and you you as a person are worth figuring that out we all as people are worth figuring out what's going on absolutely
0: tony thanks so much thanks paul what a great guy love love talking to him I want to tell you about Bayes. Bayes is pioneering personal vitamins with evidence-based supplementation based on your blood sample. You do it from the convenience of your home. You send it in. With Bayes' pioneered tap device for blood sampling, you don't have to pinch your finger with a needle anymore. The device is small, easy, and painless to use. Bayes' diagnostics platform creates individual recommendations that are then reviewed and checked by their team of nutritionists and delivered directly. Directly to your door. A guy that hands it to you hands you the package and he says, this is delicious. You control your progress by retesting every three months. Lifestyle changes, seasonality, and how your body responds allow Bayes to dynamically adjust to your needs. So I did the test. I sent it in and I got the results back and they said I could benefit from uh, vitamin E and omega-3 and I just got my packets today. So I'm going to start taking them and we'll... Uh, We'll see what happens. But it's a great idea. It's convenient. It's straightforward. It's easy to use. And right now, Bayes is offering 20% off your first purchase of one of their products. This includes the Impact Package, giving you the full experience in three months of vitamins, the personalized vitamin subscription, or a nutrient test kit. So go to com and use promo code MENTAL for 20% off. That's B-A-Z-E.com and use promo code MENTAL. Invest in your personal health today and feel the benefits at bays.com, promo code MENTAL. So we have uh, a couple of surveys to read today. Uh, uh, The the last two are a little on the the darker side. Uh, Those of you that are new to the podcast, The surveys that we read after the interview generally tend to, if they're going to be dark, they go in order of increasing darkness so that if you feel like it's starting to get too heavy for you, uh, open that car door and bail. Get out. Get out of the car. Just hope it's not one of those doors that open backwards. This is filled out by Max, who... uh, to the question what sex and gender are you they check the box other and then I'm not sure what this means they wrote it is issues I don't know if there's a typo there uh, but Max has never been sexually abused not sure if they've been emotionally abused they write I got in a lot of trouble with my dad when he thought I was gay. He found comic books I was reading that had a lesbian couple in it. But the thing that really messes with me that maybe does not count as, quote, abuse per se, but my parents were very sexist and only let my brothers go to public school because the world would corrupt us and we were very discouraged from having non-Christian friends, so I was super socially isolated. I was not in large groups of people until I went to community college, and social situations have always been very hard for me. I'm bad with social cues, especially joking and teasing. Anyway, I know high school was a bad time for a lot of people. I always think of that joke that Murray Valeriano does, that if you enjoyed high school, you were the reason the rest of us hated it. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, I know high school was a bad time for a lot of people, but I really feel like I missed out on essential development friends romance is dealing with people you do not get along with etc and all the other teens at our church went to school together including my brothers but not me and my sisters so it put us outside the only group we might have been able to be a part of i always feel behind in development both emotional and educational Because our learning was not really enforced a lot of time. We were just left to our own devices. I was a really, really lonely kid. And to this day, I'm 25, have not had a close friendship outside of my siblings. When I tell this to people, I do not think they truly understand how deeply isolated I was, how lonely and full of guilt we were not allowed to listen to a lot of music and watch a lot of movies and books because of their religion. But as we got older, we would do these things surreptitiously and then be told that these things could allow demons to possess us and then be guilty and very afraid. I also think a lot of my gender issues come from this. I wanted to be a boy as long as I can remember. I used to put on my older brother's clothes in cologne when no one was around, but now I do not know if this is actual gender dysphoria or deeply internalized misogyny. Uh, Like, do I want to identify as male, or did I just grow up thinking being male is better and more privileged? I I wonder if it has to be one or the other, um, and, and I think uh, going to see a therapist that specializes in gender issues would be really, really great because there are some great therapists that do, do that. Uh, Any positive experience with uh, people who abused you? I have good memories with my parents for sure. I do not want to paint them as monsters, just deeply sexist. It is hard to think of good memories with my dad because as kids, we were terrified of him. He is emotionally unstable and could become angry and aggressive over the smallest things. You never knew what would set him off when he was angry. He was terrifying. My mom was really depressed when we were kids, but I still have a lot more positive memories of her. Darkest Thoughts. Oh, and I forgot to read uh, uh, that they are in their 20s, identify as bisexual, and uh, were raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Darkest thoughts. Absolutely would not act on, but cutting my tongue off, peeling off all my skin, putting a needle in my eye. I do not sleep with sharp objects in my room just because I would not, but also do not entirely trust myself also killing my dog and myself. Darkest secrets. My older sibling, now going by they pronouns, but who used to identify as male, just changed their name and pronoun preference. And while I use the new name and pronoun and I am supportive as I can be, I have a little spirit of anger and jealousy in me every time I do. I've been struggling with gender issues since puberty, and although I have another name in my mind that I would like to be called, I've never asked anyone to change the way they address me they my sibling just came out on facebook like hey please use this name and they pronouns like it was nothing but i've never been able to claim that space for myself you know question mark i've never been able to inconvenience people with that insist on that never been sure enough of my identity to defend that and they were just like this please with no problem i feel gross for how i feel about this i want to support them from the bottom of my heart but the bottom of my heart is full of unkindness you know my thought is is it, while it might feel like unkindness to you i think i think when we because of trauma or whatever have a, a depleted feeling soul it's easy to just label ourselves as you know this or that but until We connect to other people and get help and start to work through our issues we don't get to experience who our real authentic person is and i have the feeling that the authentic you is not unkind sexual fantasy is most powerful to you i have a fantasy of being really dominating in the bedroom ordering someone a man around tying him up but then being really nice to him and fucking him really slowly. Uh, How does sharing that make you feel? I don't know, seems pretty normal to me. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Wow, I don't know so many things. I think I would like to confront my parents about the way they treated us, but every time we have tried to talk to them, they deny that things were the way they were. For example, my dad used to say, we could not go to the movie theater because the theater could catch fire, and he could get trapped on the roof and have to be saved off of there, and it would be on the news, and people from church would see that we were at the theater and not know if he was seeing an R-rated movie or not. Holy fuck. That might be the most fucked up thing in this whole survey. Holy shit. My God, no wonder it's hard for you to, to claim your authenticity when you were raised with that type of dishonesty and gaslighting and, and narcissism. Your dad sounds like a really sick dude. Dude. Uh, Retrospectively, he had and has anxiety that was out of control, but this was a thing he would say as a legit reason we could not go to see movies. Man, it's like he did not see you at all. Everything was filtered through his fear and his narcissism about what other people would think and, and his religiosity. Uh, Later, he would say it was a joke, but it was not a joke. He would, for real, say this as a reason. And that must have been really, really frustrating. And I can't imagine what it must be like to be in your dad's skin because he he so clearly sounds confused and just frightened, just frightened out of his mind. And like you said, he he doesn't sound like a monster, but still the, the effect that it had on you, it doesn't... Sometimes it doesn't matter what that other person's intent was. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? A different body? Is that a dumb thing to waste a wish on? My God, no! That is not dumb. I guess a less vain person would say world peace or something. No, you, you, you long for authenticity. That's the most important thing for for our personal wholeness: is to feel seen and heard, and and connected and autonomous and and to experience unconditional love Have you shared these things with others? Some things. We, me and my siblings, have talked a lot about our childhood and our parents, but I have kept the gender things to myself. I did tell some people when I took Molly, but I really regretted it the next day. How do you feel after writing these things down? I wish that when I click next, that's what it says on the uh, on the survey when you go to the next page, uh, it will take my conflicts away with it. I wish writing everything down and then dumping it into the internet would take take it out of me but I know it will not. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I want to tell other unfortunate Christian homeschooled Fundy Baptist quiverful kids that you can get away and be okay. Go to college if you can even if your parents do not support you but get away from them either way. Move out and be be your own person even if they have told you over and over that you cannot and the world is too dangerous and you are too weak. You know that that sounds like your parents talking to themselves just projecting their own fear onto you especially to the girls do not get married young to some guy in the community just to get away because he too was raised with these fucked up ideas and you will not end up free and sexually fulfilled you will end up trapped as your mother you do not need to be a man to be safe or real you are strong and smart and worthy You are more than just a baby and homemaker. You are a real person. Do not let them make you fear. Do not believe the lies. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that, Max. This is uh, a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself The Light Show Was Better Than Dancing. And uh, he writes, I'd like to share a few happy moments while they are still somewhat fresh. A few days ago, I found myself down to my last $20, and with three days to go until payday, I already wasn't doing well physically and emotionally. So my bare cupboards weren't helping "'helping lift me out of the mud. "'Still, I had an appetite, and I took that as a plus "'because I've had lows where even the thought of eating "'was nauseating. "'So I took a walk to the corner market, "'pretty uneventful in itself, "'but I must have jarred my brain and body "'into producing some serious serotonin "'and or dopamine levels. "'It seemed with every step I took, "'I was that much more out of the darkness.' By the time I got to the market, I'd say I was 40% better in the head. I wish the various medications I've experimented with could give me that kind of result. I proceeded to do some creative shopping. I managed to find enough affordable ingredients to make a relatively healthy pasta dinner. Hell, I even found a cheap dessert. I got to the cashier, and she was so helpful and friendly. Again, this did a lot to improve my mood. I thanked her and told her she helped me make my day a lot better. The walk home was enjoyable, despite being weighed down with a few bags of stuff. The weather was good and I kept thinking things like, fuck dude, you just turned $20 into a good haul. You have little to complain about tonight. By the time I got home, I was like a new man. The loneliness, depression, and mental angst of the day before was virtually gone. I've been told time and again that exercise can do wonders for your state of mind. This was one of the first times I've ever experienced it to such a degree. It was beautiful. I love that because, one, it's just fucking awesome. But you know the 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 aspect of self care that you got out and you and you did something you know seemingly simple, just walking to go get food to to feed yourself, and connecting to the cashier. Even the smallest interactions of of human connection can give us that little boost of of serotonin and the walking, of course. But thank you for that. This is a pretty dark uh, survey. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself random nobody. Uh, he identifies as bisexual. He's in his 40s. He was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, I I would beg to differ about that, but... Um, He was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, I was abused by a male teenage babysitter when I was four years old. He had me sit on his back while we were both naked while he showed me dirty magazines. Later, he sodomized me and had me lick peanut butter and jelly off of his penis. After he was done, he put me in front of the TV to watch The Muppet Show. To this day, I think about what happened to me every time I see a Muppet. That is so fucked up man wow some of the shit I come across doing this podcast just I've been doing it eight years and there are times that I just I think I've I've read it all or heard it all and I He's been physically and emotionally abused, uh, childhood spankings and parental mindfuck games. I wonder why he would identify his, his childhood environment as stable and safe. Uh, darkest thoughts, dying in a plane crash or some other kind of accident darkest secrets. I often go to chat rooms like Kick to find someone to chat with while I jerk off and edge. I sometimes do this for hours on end until I finally let myself come and then immediately I feel like a piece of shit because of all the time I wasted doing it. Self-loathing kicks in and then I hate myself for a long time until I eventually do the whole thing over again. Sadly, this is more satisfying to me than actual sex with another person." you know my thought as i was reading this was that this this has become habitual for you and that that's not necessarily in the long run if you were if you were to get help and connect to other people and find a community of people who've who understand you this would not be your choice we can rewire our brain and we can get to the point where our old coping mechanisms no longer are the thing that we want to reach for because we've gotten the feedback of picking up the, the phone rather than isolating, opening up to somebody, or practicing self-care, or doing something nice for ourselves. Uh, but it just takes time and patience. And I think you would really benefit from finding a support group Um because these activities that you're getting caught in the cycle of shame and then needing to act out to enter oblivion to not feel the shame is just the classic cycle of addictive acting out. But it's not deep down who you are. What we do is not who we are, but until we do the deep inner work and ask for help and all that other shit we don't want to do we never get to find out who we are deep inside sexual fantasy is most powerful to you fucking my mother-in-law the thought of it really is exciting to me uh sharing this makes me feel devious what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i love you honey but i like to chat and jerk off with random people on the internet it doesn't mean i don't love you what, if anything, do you wish for? To have a restart on life, a do-over from the beginning. Have you shared these things with others? No. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little bit better. Thank you for that. And I really uh, hope that you, you don't give up on yourself because um, you never know. You never know what's possible until we do something different. You know, there's a saying in recovery that if nothing changes, nothing changes. Uh, This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself me. And she writes, after a near, and this is such a subtle one, but I really love it. She writes, after nearly a decade of one-on-one talk therapy, I feel like I'm really seeing the improvements and changes in my way of thinking and reacting. Though I have obviously seen little improvements here and there, I'm just now really starting to handle my therapeutic tools. I'm so glad I did not quit. Therapy takes time, but I would not take a single day of it back. And that's such a great example of the fact that, it, uh, that it's about the tools. It's not that, oh, we're, we're broken or we're beyond help. It just takes practice. And I'm so trying to resist the urge to use the analogy of riding a bike. <laughs> but I will spare you that trope. This is a shame And ser- secret survey, and this one is dark. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, can't think of a name. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, She was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. She writes, My stepfather started sexually abusing me from the time I was about seven. My first memory of my abuse. One night he decided to sleep on the floor of my and my younger sister's room with us, almost like a sleepover. I remember waking up in the middle of the night with my pajama bottoms and underwear down. I was so confused as to how it had happened, but didn't think much more of it. As I lifted the blanket covering us, he was sleeping next to me and my younger sister on the other side of him. I noticed he had his boxers down too. This was the first time I saw his penis. Again, I didn't think much of it as I was a young girl. This abuse went on for 10 years and ended when I was 17. I ended up pregnant at 13 and had a baby boy at 14. I lied to my mom and told her I had had sex with someone at school, but I wouldn't tell her who. I ended up pregnant again at age 15, but this time I had an abortion. I remember being at the clinic getting an ultrasound, and I just felt guilty for getting the abortion. I have a gut feeling that the baby was a girl, but I'll never know. My stepfather ended up running away after a drunken night where where there was a family fight. My younger sister had told him she was tired of his bullshit. After hearing this, he tried to come after her with a pocket knife. Did I mention he didn't like being called out on his bullshit? I ran to call the police, and he ran away. This was Father's Day of 2010. I told my mom several months later about everything that happened. I remember shaking, thinking that she was going to hate me or be mad at me for what happened. She hugged me and held me as my body trembled, and I cried and asked, me why I didn't tell her sooner. She offered to take me to the police, but I was petrified and begged her not to. Fast forward three years later. And by the way, if your kid comes to you and shares that, it, don't ask them why they didn't do this or that. Because that's going to, you know, make them feel like somehow this is their fault. That just support them. Just Say that you're glad that, you, that they finally told you so that you can help them and you're going to help them get through this and you're going to be right there with them every step along the way and you love them and it was not their fault that this happened. Uh, fast forward three years later and my younger sister confides in my maternal grandmother and aunt that he was also sexually abusing her. Yes, his own biological daughter. They ended up contacting the police and that's when I came forward with my trauma to them as well. Fast forward again to the beginning of 2017 and he's been convicted and found guilty of nine counts of sexual abuse, molestation, and child endangerment. He was given 120 years in prison. I just... A moment for people to clap fellow fellow survivors out there so many of whom have never had any kind of justice it's so rare that i read one of these surveys and somebody is brought to justice and given a just sentence um I feel relieved that he will spend the rest of his life in prison. It's only fair, seeing as I'll suffer from his narcissistic, predatory actions for the rest of my life. Uh, She's also been physically and emotionally abused. On top of being a pedophile monster rapist, my stepdad, who I refer to as asshole, he was a drunk who took out his insecurities on everyone else. If there were things that he could not control, such as me growing up and going to high school, I would be shamed and made to feel guilty about it. He kicked me out of the house three times, right before I started my freshman year of high school, because I had gone to the registration welcome event at the school. He would also always tell me that one day I'd be turning him into the police and I'd leave him to rot in prison. I'd always try to assure him I wouldn't, even though God knows I wanted to. I was forced to live a facade of everything being okay when I knew it wasn't. I could go on and on, but you get the picture. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Yes, he was my stepdad. Him and my mom always reminded me of how I called him daddy the very first time I met him when I was two. That is fucking heartbreaking and so loaded with... As much as he tortured me physically and sexually, he still worked, put a roof over our head, and taught me how to work hard. I hate to admit this, but he's probably the reason I have such high work ethic. It's amazing the crumbs that we will we will say, yeah, but they did this. It's like, yeah, if somebody takes on a kid, putting a roof over their head, And feeding them is not... You're not doing them a favor. (laughs) That's expected. Uh, He'd spoil us in material items and we would go on road trips to Mexico to visit his family. It does complicate how I feel about him. On one hand, he's a monster and I can't believe how selfish he was in doing what he did to my sister and I. And he could rot in hell and be raped in prison daily and I would not care. At the same time, I feel such sadness because I feel like things were done to him by his dad. He's somebody's son, and that breaks my heart. Having seen him in that orange jumpsuit and chains nearly broke me. I cry as I type this out right now. I love him for the times he was an amazing, hard-working father. I hate him for the times he put my sister and I through pain as children and teenagers, and for the fact that I am now mentally fucked up. Darkest Thoughts I don't want to live anymore. About three months after I had my daughter, pretty much a year to the date, I swallowed 30 Advil tablets with the intention of killing myself. I now know that taking that many, Advil will only give you severe stomach pains. Anyways, I've gotten better and have learned better coping mechanisms to deal with my anger, rage, sadness, and complete feelings of despair. I still think occasionally that I'm just tired of living tired of struggling with life's mundane redundancies and ridiculousness. However, I have two daughters who deserve a mother that at least attempts to get better. They deserve a mother who, although may have mental issues, is trying to resolve them. I'd never go through with killing myself, but I welcome death. Now that's a t-shirt. I'd never go through with killing myself, but I welcome death. Man, sadly, there are so many of us, who have felt that so many days the only thing I fear is leaving my daughters behind darkest secrets because of how early I was exposed to the concept of sex I learned to masturbate at a really early age eight or nine I would masturbate often if I was ever alone in my room also there were times when I was being sexually abused that I would actually orgasm not uncommon at all Uh, This conflicted me for the longest time, even a little to this day, because why would I reach orgasm if I didn't enjoy it? I understand that while your mind and your conscience knows what's going on is wrong, your body can react differently. Both these things, only my husband knows, and both bring me shame. Also, I've been physically abusive to my husband. In times of arguments, I've completely lost my mind and rage has taken over. I've broken laptops, phones, TVs, Xboxes, as well as my husband's glasses. I've hit him with belts, hangers, brooms in my own hands. I feel like shit. I've gotten better this year at checking myself and going for a drive when I begin to feel the itch and want to hit something. I still feel like shit. My husband has never looked at me as anything less, and has always been there for me and accepted my demonic, rageful, alter self. There's no excuse for why I've done what I've done to him. All I can do is make attempts to handle things better and not let the rage consume my thoughts, but I cry at least once a week and tell him I'm profusely sorry for what I've done. Although he's forgiven me and looks at moving forward in life optimistically, I can't forgive myself. I've also traumatized my oldest daughter, who's two. Every time my husband and I now have a heated discussion, my daughter sits in his lap. If I get too close to him, she begins to yell at me and cry, and she holds her dad close. I can't believe I've done this to my family. I'll never forgive myself. I sometimes want to run away from my husband and kids because I feel they would be better without me, but I feel they deserve a wife and mother who is trying to fix herself and be better for herself and them. I'll still always feel like shit. I don't know if that's true that you'll always feel like shit. I think if you do the work to heal, I think all of this can change for the better. And that doesn't mean that you know there won't always be pangs of regret or guilt or occasional shame, but in in my experience these things lessen. And the more they lessen, the less we're trapped in our own head, obsessing about ourselves and getting caught in circular negative thinking, working ourselves up into a into a rage, which just kind of complete, you know, feeds that cycle. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like watching videos where women are being forced to have sex. I don't know why and I feel fucked up about it. I like watching a man dominate a woman the way he pleases. It turns me on and helps me reach orgasm. However, I know that if I were in that scenario, I'd hate it. It makes me feel gross and contradictory. It's actually really kind of a textbook for somebody who has experienced that. Uh, there there seems to be a relationship uh, between the things that turn us on and, and the things that bring us anxiety. So that's, that's not unusual at all. And we have no control over what turns us on. We only have control over what we do with it. what, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? To my mom, I know that what happened to me wasn't her fault, and I know that asshole would rape her and physically abuse her as well. However, I hate that she wasn't a better mother out of the whole situation. Even if she didn't know what was happening, my sister and I, the constant drinking, kicking me out, and overall dysfunction in the house, should have been enough for her to divorce him. I know she had a gut feeling or some knowledge of what was going on with my sister and I, but she had no courage or bravery to protect us. I wish she'd just admit that she knew I would never have slept with some kid at age 13 and gotten myself pregnant twice, and that it was because of that asshole. I was a good kid, had good grades, and was a good daughter. I wish she'd admit she knew what was going on, but didn't know how to handle the issue. I'd feel less crazy if she did. What, if anything, do you wish for? Uh, She didn't respond to that. Have you shared these things with others? I've only shared these things in its entirety with my husband. It felt good to be able to tell someone and not be looked at any differently. He just listened, validated my realities, and hugged me and told me he was there, and that shit would never happen to me again. The first time I told him I had given birth to a boy, had an abortion, and was sexually abused by my stepfather, he told me he was in love with me, and none of those things changed how he viewed me. God, I'm lucky to have him. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels good being able to share my story. I'd like to one day write a book about the struggles in my life, maybe. To be able to recount these things and share them in a community with many other survivors is like a breath of fresh air. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That that is a lot for one human being to to endure, and you know that desire you have to to write a book and share about it. Um, start start sharing it in a in a support group with with people. I know I sound like a fucking broken record, but. It, it, support groups changed my life. They saved my life. And uh, you know, 90% of my close friends to this day are people I met in support groups because we know the power of unconditional love and how that helps rebuilding trust and self-love because for a lot of us, we, we can't get to the place of self-love on our own. I, I had to experience other people loving me and unconditionally to realize, well, they can't all have low standards. <laughs> Maybe there is something about me that isn't horrible. And that's what I hope you take out of today's podcast. <laughs> is that you too may have something in you that's not horrible. Uh, this is, and finally, this is an awful some moment filled out by a woman brimming with self-esteem who calls her self-dumbass. And she writes, I've been on depression meds for several months. However, some life events and maybe my brain chemistry rendered them ineffective. I found myself on the line with my insurance company to find a psychiatrist and they suggested I go to the hospital. More so forced than suggested. My father drove almost two hours from another state to take me. He and I haven't been particularly close for some time, but it was in that moment, in a bright green gown and gray hospital socks, stripped of all personal belongings, making jokes about the situation and holding each other, that I felt closer to him than ever. Thank you for that. That is... Isn't that kind of life just condensed? Is just dancing through the shit show just (laughs) finding somebody to hold on to through the shit show you know it's been my experience that even the worst situations if we can keep that little bit of humanness that little bit of optimism that little bit of love and vulnerability alive that we can find moments of beauty even in the darkest Darkest places and darkest times, and what a great example of that this is. And I <laughs> love the image of the bright green gown and the gray hospital socks. Why do they go with the, uh, all the color in the gown, and then they fuck the socks? I think if if you're gonna do something bright green, do the socks. That's just simple hospital aesthetics. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you got something out of it. And if you're out there and you're struggling, I hope you know that you're not alone and that we can recover. We can get better. We just got to be patient with the process, patient with ourselves. And, you know, we're uniquely positioned to be our own best friend. So why would we talk to ourselves like our worst enemy? And uh, just remember that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully, know weird is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely
1: beautifully fucked up in some weird way